0: Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. Today's episode is brought to you by the phrase, form follows feeling, a design ethos informed by neuroaesthetics, the study of how the brain responds to the design of our surroundings. Visuals are a big part of camera readiness. And when I first heard the phrase form follows feeling in a conversation with my guest for this episode, architect Suchi Reddy, I wanted to learn more. A leader in today's global design culture, Suchi's work spans the fields of architecture, design, and public art with extensive experience in large-scale cultural, educational, retail, commercial, and residential projects. If you're in New York, you can see Suchi's beautiful design work in the Google Store on the ground floor of Google's headquarters in Chelsea. Suchi is also a distinguished professor and sits on several boards, including the Design Trust for Public Space. Welcome, Suchi.
1: Hi, Barbara. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Thank you. I am thrilled you could make time to have this conversation. So there is so much humanity in the phrase form follows feeling that I would love for you to walk us through it. Sure.
1: Um, You know, uh, for architects, there is a phrase form follows function, which is a very famous phrase and um, came from a very important mid-century architect with huge Presence in the world of architecture. So, you know, when you're an architect, you kind of grow up with this idea that form must follow function, and form does need to follow function. But when I was about 10 years old, growing up in India, I um, had actually the good fortune to live in a house that was actually designed by an architect. It wasn't just done by a builder, which generally was the norm there. And I remember one day having this kind of epiphany the kinds, you know, I've had a few in my life. This one was maybe the first one that I do actually remember. And I remember feeling that my house was making me a different person than my friends. And, you know, when you're 10 years old, you this kind of lands in your head and you're like, oh, okay, that must be the way, you know, everybody feels about things, right? So it drove me to become an architect. And really in that process, 20 years now into my own practice, I've refined that feeling into this idea that form follows function. So in some ways, it's a play, uh, form follows feeling, sorry. So that in some ways, it's a play on the idea that form follows function, but really that we design most importantly for how we feel. And if we don't design from that place, creating a world that's inclusive or empathetic cannot happen. And so over the last maybe decade or so, my practice, which began with you know, doing homes, apartments, uh, ground-up houses, and it's now kind of developed into doing all kinds of things, including homes, apartments, interior design for people, houses, stores, um, thought projects, art installations. It's grown a lot. The through line in all of that is still this idea that I want to design for how you feel. I want to make you feel better in the spaces that I can make for you.
0: Well, so in coaching, we're always asking people, how do you want to feel? Because it's something we often don't stop to ask ourselves. So a big mantra of mine, and I keep it above my desk is if your presence doesn't work, neither will your word, because your being must connect to your doing, you can't separate the two of them. And we, especially in the United States, we're doing, 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 we're all about doing, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but we don't want to stop and think about our being and how are we showing up, right? So when you ask somebody, how do you want to feel when you're giving that speech? Or how do you want to feel when you're going on camera? It's often people stop and it really is a lot of conversation. So I have to assume sometimes when you th- ask people, how do you really want to feel in your home? Because Peaceful or quiet is awesome, and I actually want to feel a peace in my home. But that's so broad, actually. Like, do you want to feel that 100% of the time you're in your home? Do you want to feel that in every room? Do you want to feel that in that office? And I am going to get into some of your beautiful public spaces that I've seen. It's like, how do you... So where does that conversation start for you with a client?
1: Well, for me, with a client, it really starts with... You know, generally, most clients come to us because um, they've seen something that we've done. You know, they're like, well, we want you to create this for us. And this is how we want, you know, we want all of these pieces in it. We kind of want to do these things in this space. And we want it to function for us in this way. They don't often come to me saying, I want to feel this way. It's something that I deduce. You know, this is my way of working. You know, this is this is where I come from, where somebody gives me all of those things. And when they give me all of those things, it's my skill as an architect, as a poet of space, that I can take all of that and put it together in a way that really draws from you, the kinds of feelings and states, really, that I want you to have, whether it's designing for creativity, whether it's designing for focus, whether it's designing for well-being, whether it's designing for peace, for serenity, for quiet, all of those things have to come together. And it's really my honor, honestly, to work with people to understand the different measures to which you mix all of those ingredients to create a successful project. Because there's never any one feeling, right? We're always having (laughs) tons of feelings. And in some ways, it's really, how do you balance all of those things? And architecture is this amazing art that really, for me, isn't just a passive wrapper. It really acts on you, in my opinion, and really shapes you and can really give you the kind of support that you get from, you know, kind of knowing that you have your family support in the back of your head, let's say. You know if you want to uh, equate that to how it might feel in its best case and i think through the pandemic we've all realized the importance of this because for Mm -hmm. once we've been confined to our spaces we don't have our usual crutches and distractions etc so how amazing would it have been had we all been able to go into the cocoon that was made for us that allowed us to do what we did best you know, that allowed us to connect in the ways we could connect best. Like I could have imagined a whole other world had we been ready for it. But the nice thing about it is that it's really allowed people to understand that space is important.
0: Wait, I want to go back to how could we have prepared? If Suchi, if you had your magic wand and you were designing the entire world, what would we all have so we would have been better prepared?
1: Well, you all would have had places to rest, places to transition, places from which you're allowed to change your mind state, you know, liminal spaces are actually really, really, really important. And we get those in kind of daily life when we go from here to there, or we do things, you know, in between things, like those in between spaces are incredibly important. And a lot of us, including me, because I live in a a tiny studio, don't have that ability, you know? So how do we find that? How do we find that through space? How do we find that through objects? How do we find that through focus? These are the things I would have designed if I could
0: have. That's incredible. It makes me realize that maybe I wish in the life skill category of things that are no longer taught in school anyway. But I was like, what if we all had learned lighting design? So we understood <laughs> what a difference lighting makes in life and our moods in every room. Exactly. I'm just put that driving, putting that into the universe's, you know, suggestion box. Right. You know, on a deep level, I want to go back to something to, that really taught me is years ago, working on a interior design show for HGTV, I met with um, someone who was a professor and he explained, it was just a really powerful moment when he explained to me, you know, a jail cell is basically empty space, right? Designed to crush the spirit. Yes. And I was like, Whoa. and he said, so at the same time, um, which I think totally interrelates to what you're saying. He was like, he was on a mission to actually change the way hospitals are designed and places because they're not designed understanding the aesthetics and how important color, light, texture, everything is to us helping to get well. They tend to be designed by what was the cheapest thing we could get.
1: Absolutely. I think he's absolutely right. And that's the power of space. You know, we seemed to have figured out how to mine that in order to make people feel bad. But I don't think we've actually really used it, you know, endemically as a society to figure out how to make people feel good. There are all of these other labels attached to that, like, you know, luxury or wealth or but it shouldn't be, you know, good design should be a human right. It has to be the kind of thing that everyone can have, because how would you be able to think about your future in a positive way if you were living in a place that wasn't positive? that didn't give you that, that didn't have light, that didn't have air, that didn't have plants, that didn't have views of nature. You know, it's difficult to do those things. And this is actually, you know, this is what building codes and things try to address. They try to make sure there's like a minimum standard that everybody can follow. But again, there's a layer of specificity to that, you know, of feeling like your house was designed for you, not just a shell that you walked into. You know, there are all of these uh, incredible intersections between our emotional worlds and our physical worlds. And that's really where I'm excited to work. I want to put those two worlds together. And now maybe our digital world, too.
0: Well, speaking of that, and the reason why I thought this was such an important conversation, aside from being excited to talk about it, but even in my world of, of camera ready and able, is that how much this shows up in the optics and design. We're all on camera now. And mm-hmm. we already were, but also just for anyone who's listening, who's a producer and makes decision about set design, et cetera, is one, the Twitter feed room Rater, you know, popped out of nowhere during the pandemic to show, I mean, they rate everyone's room and it's like the optics <laughs> matter and the impact. There's also so much data on the psychology of lighting. It interacts intersects with the Moravian theory, but just there's a ton of psychological data about how much light And what you're wearing in color impacts how we receive your message. So this interrelates to everything that you're talking about. Um, So now I want to transition, though. The first time I became aware of you and your amazing work was when I saw the Pinwheel Flower Garden in Prospect Park in 2017. So I want everybody listening to Google this right now if you didn't get to see it. It's a staggeringly beautiful installation. Two and a half acres, over 7,000 yellow flower-like pinwheels it was so joyful and I mean, just, and I didn't even, I just stumbled on it one day in the park and was like, wow. And then I went back, I think like every week, as long as it was there, it just, it really just made me so happy. So what was the genesis of that? Because that's a huge thing. And I feel it's the intersection of so much of what you do.
1: Oh, um, thank you. That was really a, a really wonderful opportunity. Um, I was asked by, some friends of mine who were asked to organize an event to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the park, if I would design an installation. And we looked at different areas in the park and we ended up in what was called the Rose Garden, which was actually in the old days when Olmsted actually designed it had these three pools that were filled with water and was an incredibly vibrant space but had fallen into disrepair and the park really wanted to bring attention to that area also wanted to really understand what um because that particular park is surrounded by such a diverse demographic to really understand how people were engaging with the park and could we do that in an installation so I've always been fascinated by pinwheel since I was a child. And this element of wonder is something that I always feel I need to introduce into my work, whether it's an installation, whether it's a space, you know, whether it's just an atmosphere, whether it's a set, this idea that, that really either expresses what you wanted to express or gives you that little aha moment, whatever it is, whether it's like touching a fabric or seeing something really amazing is something very important to me. So I, I, basically realized a a childhood fantasy of um, filling um, this whole space um, with 7,000 of these uh, pinwheels um, on which the organizers had allowed people to, you know, submit their thoughts about the park, print ideas of the park, you know, assemble these pinwheels on site, make them there. And it was so satisfying. So we turned the three pools into galleries And so you could kind of sit there in the middle and see all of these things. You could watch the wind actually go through the pinwheels. So it took the invisible forces in the park. It made them visible, which is another kind of, you know, recurring theme in my work. I like to look at wonder. I like to look at invisible things becoming visible. I like to look at emotions and spaces. I like to look at how we travel through both those kinds of spaces. So that's how that came about.
0: Because you just took one of my words that was wonder, whimsy. It was also, to your point, completely sensory because it was not only visual and then you know feeling and experiencing the wind, but it was tactile because we were permitted to touch the pinwheels mm-hmm. and stop and breathe them. And the other aspect of this, and one of the reasons my husband and I went back multiple times was the joy of watching other people relate to it. Seeing um, parents with children, you could tell couples that were on dates and how they were connecting with each other. No, it was stunning because it brought people together and to watch, again, delight in real time. And for us, it brought us to a part of the park that we hadn't visited before. And we thought, wow, I never even knew this section was here. So again, it's Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York, and it was amazing. I also want to ask you, going back to what you said earlier, was you know this thing about your house, and it was designed by an architect, because one of my questions for you was, what was the first time you saw a structure, and it spoke to your soul? So you're telling me that at 10 years old, your house is speaking to your soul somehow.
1: Yes, for sure.
0: Okay, what's that like? And you said you realized it was you were somehow different. Uh, well, yeah, I just realized that my house
1: was, it was a protagonist in my life, you know, that it wasn't, it was an actor, it wasn't just something i inhabited i felt like i was in constant interaction with it and that was a really important like i parts of my you know psyche my growing up brain they're all associated with like different spaces in that house different spaces in the garden and they made a huge impact on me that's all i can (laughs) i didn't have the language for it then i don't know that i totally have the language for it now but it truly led me on this journey of the discovery of the qualities of space
0: Yeah, because this is what I'm getting at, is most of us are just floating through, not even aware. And the fact that at such a young age, you were aware of the power of space and your relationship to it and that you were in the space. That's what I think is amazing.
1: I was lucky. I was really lucky.
0: And then how did what was the process then to become an architect for you? Did you know other architects? Did you have to? No,
1: I mean, other than the gentleman who had designed our house, I didn't know anyone else. And, you know, this was growing up in India. And, you know, I think my father had never dissuaded me from doing anything in my life. But I kind of said I either wanted to be an anthropologist or an architect. And he kind of gently dissuaded me from becoming an anthropologist. Do you feel that? wait, 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 does
0: that somewhat inform your work? Because aren't you there's this cultural anthropological aspect yes, to what you do?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's all of these interests, you know, and that's actually what I also love about architecture and making space for people is that all of my interests, whether they're sound or quantum physics or anything, can come into the way that I work. And that's the beauty of it. I can always be pulling these things together, these ideas together, because, you know, we're we're artists. We're People who are inspired by everything around us. We're not really just looking down these little you know, tunnel vision blocks of, you know, I must only be looking at architecture. I get my inspiration from everywhere. And it's really a beautiful thing that I'm able to work in this medium that allows me to bring it all in.
0: I want to ask you about something you said a second ago that just stuck with me was the idea of making things visible that are normally invisible, which I guess also is, is around Introducing awareness. So, as it happened in the pinwheels, what else are you consciously thinking of in that moment?
1: Well, you know, we could look at, um, like, for instance, when I when I design someone's home, right? I'm trying to find, even if they don't say they want a peaceful home, I'm trying to find that quality of serenity that I can make visible there that they can find. So, and that involves like making sure all the lines line up, that you know everything is is ordered. So that they can create their own disorder in there um, that's theirs and belongs to them and gives them this kind of, you know, individuality that they can express within this kind of space that's that's organized um, to harmonize with them. So it's things like that. You know, I always sound I feel like sometimes I sound like a snake oil salesperson when I talk to clients, you know, I'm like, trust me, you're going to feel great in here. And they're like, really? OK. You know? And and the wonderful ones go on the journey with you you know, and allow you to really express that for them. And I've I've had the deep honor of having them come back to me and just say how much they've loved their space and, you know, how their friends won't leave after dinner parties. And that, you know, and these are the joys of doing what I do. You know, it's really, those are the things that I can't put any kind of a measure on. So it's really wonderful to be able to do that. And most recently, I think in terms of making Invisible visible, um, I just made a a sculptural installation that's at the Smithsonian. And it's about visions of the future. So really uh, I ask people to speak into the sculpture a word for their future. And the whole sculpture is a light sculpture and you speak into it, you give it a word for your future and it returns this particular light mandala that's specifically yours because it's reading your voice and your intonation and then overlays all this visual code and creates this pattern that's just you. And then that pattern that's you becomes part of a whole central pattern that's everyone's ideas of the future. So it's like that. It's like taking voice and making it into light, you know. So I could look at making the invisible visible in so many ways. Okay,
0: I'm just Did I processing lose you there? And taking that <laughs> all in. No, you I, didn't lose me. You got me. 110 percent. I'm just, my mind is going, wow. And the visuals of all of this. So now I want to back up to, um, on behalf of listeners of a certain age, we all grew up with one architect and one architect only. That was Mike Brady on the Brady Bunch who <laughs> worked in his home office designed God knows what, um, it wasn't working at your level. I can tell you that Suchi. So what I want to get at is I saw the ex- extraordinary pinwheels in Prospect Park. I've seen the Google store and now I'm trying to imagine this extraordinary installation of the Smithsonian. Okay. It's, it's such a cliche, but what is your process? Like, where do you start? How do you, how do you put all that together from your mate, your brain just going, God, I can't even imagine just like what the bubbles are right now. Oh, your head.
1: You know, luckily I just, usually what I do is someone comes to me with something. I usually say, can I get back to you tomorrow? And I go to sleep on it. <laughs> Honestly, I do a lot of my work when I'm sleeping. Um, To be, it's very true. I put all of the challenges and the limitations of a project into my head, and I kind of wait for them to sort of percolate. Because it's actually really important to have limitations, because they they shape a thing, and they they you know whether it's a budget, whether it's a timeline, whether it's you know the lack of space, whether it's whatever it is, you know, it's a low ceiling space, a high ceiling, whatever it is, to work with those constraints to actually find. The value that you want to bring out of that is the exciting part. Um, And that's why every one of our projects is different. Like people will come to me, they're like, well, what's your style? And I'm not not very fond of that word, particularly when it comes to architecture, because there are so many different ways in which people can inhabit space. There are so many different things to speak to different people. If you ask me, I would say I'm a modernist. I would say I'm a serenist. That's what I would do for you. Whatever that is, I'll find it in there. You know, but you have your own voice in there because it's important that people are represented in spaces also, that we're not designing this world for some imaginary median person who doesn't exist. And therefore, we end up in this kind of sterile situation that doesn't speak to anybody because we're trying to speak to someone in the middle that doesn't exist. So it's really like figuring out the limitations and then working with that. That's where I start.
0: Okay, so you're an intuitive. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Does this also come to you through meditation? Often. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Okay, fun stuff. Um, do you walk into spaces and have to like control the urge to want to pick change it i don't know if fix it's a fair word but you know what i mean because i every interior designer i know says they walk into hotels and they move stuff around i've known people i've witnessed people walk into retail spaces and move things around to make it better. <laughs> no, you know, like literally the sense of making it better is like you're gonna sell more if i move your stuff around
1: <laughs> no i don't do that.
0: don't mind no, me no okay um but but could you get like are there any famous spaces you're like oh i'd love to get my hands on it
1: Ah! Uh, wow Let's see. No, I only keep the ones I really like in my head.
0: <laughs> oh, gosh,
1: there are so many buildings through, um, through history that I think make wonderful spaces. Most of them are fairly minimal. Some of them are fairly maximal. It all depends. But I really, I guess I don't really have this urge to edit the world. I think the world is the world. And that becomes a factor, you know, for me, that becomes one of those limiting factors. If I'm creating a space within that world, how am I creating the transition between those things? Like that's exciting for me. So I'll just focus my energy there and leave other people to their thinking.
0: What haven't you done that you wanna do?
1: Oh, there's so much. Um, I would love to do a public space. Like I would love to do maybe a library. I would love to do something in the performing arts. I think theater would be such an incredible place to design for just because it has to be such a flexible envelope that can hold so much. Um, Set design is something I've dreamt of.
0: Set design is amazing too because in theater especially, theater, set design tells the story. I just felt like if you watch, like, Warhorse, for example, which is Lincoln Center. I mean, that's the staging and and it is so much a part of the storytelling, which is different than if you watch the exactly. film version. And obviously set design and costume design, et cetera, et cetera, always tell the story, but in theater you you're so much more conscious and it's a part right. of it. And,
1: and- yeah, scenography I think is very underrated. And this, this ability to create atmospheres, I think, are is incredibly important. So it would be really beautiful too.
0: Have you done a restaurant or a resort? Yes, what would the sushi resort be?
1: Um, It would be mostly calm, mostly open to the outside, but with places of real fun. No, I haven't done a resort yet. I've just been asked to do one, and so we shall see. And um, let's see what else you asked me. A restaurant? Yeah, I've done a couple of restaurants, um, but they've been in different cities, and I don't think they're there anymore. Um, You know, they have they tend to have a quicker life shorter life.
0: You're also a professor. And one thing I want to ask about this, Suchi, is that, um, not that I'm an expert by any stretch, but I've never heard anyone talk about form follows feeling besides you. So is is this something sort of unique to you as well as what you're you know, teaching students? I
1: think the phrase itself might have been coined by a sculptor a long time ago. Um, and in fact, I think he was an Indian sculptor. A friend of mine brought me a book after... I had been saying this for about five years and then he said, hey, Sucha, have you seen this book? It's called that. I was like, oh, wow, that's so great. You know, I'm not claiming to have invented anything. I think many of the really good architects are the ones who can do this, who can create atmospheres and feelings and moods when a building moves you, that's what it's doing. It's the skill of the person who could actually corral this because also architecture is like making a movie, right? You've You've got to orchestrate all of these people from the client to the people who work on it, it depends the skill of every single person along that line, and the will of every single person along that chain matters to the quality of what's produced. So it's in some ways, it's very similar to, to making film. And uh, I certainly don't think I was the first, but it's certainly the thing that's been driving me the longest.
0: Where can we find out more about you and what you do? You,
1: well, I guess our website is a good place um, to go. It's www.rmdny, as in newyork.com, um, or our Instagram, which is at Design R-E-D-D-Y-M-A-D-E-D-E-S-I-G-N. That should give you a good idea of my schizophrenia
0: <laughs> and my. I was going to say, I love your, I love your Instagram. I, I so want to go move into those spaces or go, you know, be a fly on the wall. That's incredible. Thank you so much. This is really, um, yeah. Open my eyes, ears, soul, brain. I love it.
1: Thank you, Barbara. Thank you for having me.
0: And I want to thank you for listening to camera ready and able, please visit ableintermedia.com and download my free ebook, 12 tips for success on camera, and as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already.